Today's show is brought to you by Airtable. What is Airtable? It's part spreadsheet, part database, and entirely flexible. Take maintaining an editorial calendar. You need to manage writers, manage editors, manage copy editors, manage social media people, and you got to do it all on tight deadlines. Anyone who has been in a newsroom can tell you it gets messy fast. It's like a restaurant kitchen, controlled chaos at its best. With Airtable, you can get organized in your own way. That's why leading teams at places like BuzzFeed Studios, Group 9 Media, and Time all use Airtable. It's flexible enough to adapt to your process, but powerful enough to keep everything on schedule. Visit Airtable.com slash Digiday today and get $50 in free credits. Hello and welcome to the Digiday Podcast. I'm Brian Morrissey. Today's episode is a live podcast session I did with HuffPost CEO Jared Gruz at our Digiday Publishing Summit held in Vail, Colorado recently. Jared and I discuss why the HuffPost hasn't gone Trump-Russia crazy and the limits of the pivot to subscriptions. Jared thinks many won't be able to make this leap into paid models. It's a good contrarian take. Hope you enjoy it. So it's, Jared, you've Two and a half years ago, yeah. you joined uh, Huffington Post, uh, at then Huffington Post, from Spotify. Correct. A lot has changed in two and a half years. Get, like, what, what is the difference now, first in the market, versus then? Um, I think the biggest uh, change for publishers is when I joined the company, it was very clear that the strategy every publisher was trying to take was, how do I build content that worked best on Facebook. With the idea being all of the audience is really consuming content on Facebook, that's the best way I can either refer traffic back to my site or have my content consumed on a platform. And there is uh, a bunch of venture-backed companies that are investing very heavily in terms of delivering video content and written content that worked extremely well on Facebook um, with the hope that if you could build the audience on Facebook, eventually monetization would catch up and you could build a great business. And um, I would say two and a half years later, the overall sentiment is, hey, Facebook can be very valuable for some things, but it may not be valuable to build an entire business on the back of. And so I think what publishers are now trying to figure out is, what does the world look like in terms of driving audience and driving revenue in a world where Facebook can still play a role, but may not play as dominant a role as they thought they could two years ago. Right. So, I mean, Huffington Post, when it started, really rose with SEO. It yep. mastered SEO mm -hmm. before other publications. New York Times was ignoring SEO at that time. Um, and they stole uh, a march on, on that. Um, and then when Facebook came around, I got, I got the data and everything, and Huffington Post you know, was able to become very good at Facebook. So how, how much did the algorithm change hurt? Well, if, you, um, if you're a publisher, um, it's, despite all the changes in distribution, despite all the changes in platforms, at the end of the day, your job to do in life is actually kind of simple to articulate, very difficult to execute. Yeah. It's like, how do I build content that people actually want to consume? Uh, number two is, how do I find audiences? And number three, how do I go monetize those audiences that I build? That is the fundamental goal that all of us are trying to figure out. And I think in the case of HuffPost, um, 
the key strength of the organization has always been primarily around um, the second and third buckets, which is, are we savvy enough to understand where consumers are finding content and ensuring that we can put our content there in a very um, authentic way? So to your point, HuffPost grew up on the back of SEO. It figured out social in a very good way and um, published really well on Facebook, Twitter, and other social platforms. Um, and now, even with Apple News, uh, there's a big ascendancy in terms of consumption taking place in Apple News. And HuffPost has really been um, a primary participant in, in the uh, ascendancy of Apple News. I think the challenge that all of us are facing is that um, while there, the monetization on each of the platforms um, historically has um, always been a bit of a challenge. And, um, Right now, we're seeing dislocation in the ad markets. And so even if you can find the audiences in those places, um, can the monetization actually catch up with that? I think it's in part because of that dislocation of, hey, even if I'm good at building audiences, if the money is not there, do I have the sort of fortitude and patience um, to ride that out? Or do I have to rethink what my goal of in life? And I think. This year, everyone's talking about, hey, forget the size of my audience. Can I get as engaged an audience as possible? Can I convert a audience to a member or a subscriber mm -hmm. with the goal of being like, hey, maybe scale in and of itself isn't actually a good business model? But scale still matters. Scale matters I mean, a lot. It's a, having HuffPost now, yes. HuffPost is, is still a scale model. Yeah, it's a scale model for sure. And our strategy, I told you there's three jobs that we're trying to solve. The first one, when in terms of content, our goal actually is to maintain scale, but actually go deeper with the scale that we have. And um, the formula for that is not rocket science. For us, we're making a big bet in terms of quality and differentiation. And so some of the tactics that we've used historically, in fact, we're pioneers in the industry, for example, creating a blogging network, which a lot of organizations are now adopting even in the year 2018, we're moving away from. UGC, we are moving away from. Instead, we're investing in um, our own journalism with the goal of if we can actually continue to establish our brand, if we can continue to establish our editorial strategy, um, will that resonate more with our audience base mm -hmm. and actually grow it versus using a whole bunch of tactics to just get um, as many people in the funnel as possible. A quick break for a word from our sponsor. Today's sponsor is Airtable, the all-in-one collaboration platform. Teamwork has never been more important, and that's hard to pull off in a messy environment like today's where everything is constantly changing. That's where Airtable comes in. This is a tool that can fit your process but is also powerful enough that it keeps everyone on the same page. Time uses Airtable to manage its entire creative process, from the original idea to creating content and getting it out the door. Airtable empowers you to do your work your way. Try it today. Head to Airtable.com slash Digiday to receive $50 in free credits. Thank you, Airtable. Now back to the episode. So along with changing the brand to, to HuffPost, yeah. you brought in uh, Lydia Polgrain mm -hmm. from the New York Times. She went to journalism school with me. Oh, really? Yeah, she did. Uh, right. And... Um, HuffPost sort of moved into, it was always, you know, when it was thought of with, with, with Ariana Huffington, it was always thought of as a left-wing answer to, mm -hmm. um, to Drudge, basically. Um, but then it was, uh, you guys were saying a lot more, no, we want to be for both sides, mm -hmm. right, in a time when not many people are, um, and we want to carve out uh, this place 
for you know, the, the, the parts of the country that are struggling. How, how do you think that has gone? Um, I think it's going very well. I think um, in the Ariana era, Ariana would say all the time that HuffPost is beyond left and right. And while I'm aware of the reputation of it being um, sort of a progressive liberal uh, media organization, it's not the way internally Ariana or the team when she was leading the organization actually thought about what they're doing. With Lydia, um, I think there is a shift in terms of the focus. And the focus, to your point, is really around um, speaking to those people who um, otherwise feel left out from the system. So I think the traditional uh, the concepts of left and right are breaking down um, across many different political issues. And if you think about even the election, we're obviously living in a highly polarized time in society. Uh, less than 60% of eligible voters in the United States actually voted in the US election. So there's 40% of other people who have ideas who um, don't feel part of the political system mm -hmm. and also may not feel an affinity to any particular journalism source. So I think there's huge parts of the country in the US and if you broaden it to the world where people actually, despite the number of media publications out there, actually don't feel connected to a given source. And I think HuffPost can play a great role in terms of speaking to people who otherwise left out. And so our strategy is differentiation plus quality. Um, and I think that um, mm -hmm. is the path that HuffPost is taking. So yeah, tell, tell me more about the differentiation. Sure. What is the differentiation of HuffPost now? Because look, a lot of people had said in its history, uh, it's an aggregator. It's yep. just aggregating things from around the internet. Um, if there was a differentiation, it was it was thought of as that liberal bent, a lot of like, a lot of blogging going on there. Um, you know, many people on LinkedIn saying that they were a uh, Huff, yeah. Huffington Post contributor. Mm -hmm. Well, I think um, I think two things in particular. The first is, as I was talking about, just the editorial positioning of the newsroom. I think is unique in the marketplace. But the second, and something that. Um, we haven't addressed yet, but we might as well address right now, is HuffPost is a global organization. And so we are in 16 countries around the world with uh, specific newsrooms in each of those markets appealing to um, those local markets uh, in a different way. And I think one of the benefits... And they're, they're done through different... Some are licensing, some are partnerships, some are, are yeah, owned and operated. That's, that's, that's true. But when you forget sort of the business structure behind them, what is consistent across the board in all of them is sort of the editorial positioning and the editorial voice. So the business structure we can talk about, but in mm -hmm. terms of like consumer value okay. proposition, um, what's interesting is that the competitive dynamics in each of these markets, whether it's the UK, whether it's France, whether it's Japan, whether it's Korea, is very different um, than it is uh, in the US. And so having a kind of consistent theme to how we go about um, covering media, um, I think, is a big competitive advantage um, because we have the ability of, of global scale and global voice. The second thing I would say is that we're obviously living in a media cycle where news and politics is on the forefront of everybody's mind. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of brands are being built and defined specifically by the political cycle. 
But one of the things that has always been the case at HuffPost, it's not uh, front and center in today's cycle, is that um, the brand stands for a lot more than just news and politics. So when we talk about lifestyle content, we talk about entertainment content, um, that's very much part of our DNA. And having fun and levity um, is really important, especially in a world where the news cycle can be um, overwhelming to a lot of different people. And HuffPost has not really over-indexed in the Trump stuff. Like, I mean, you're not really, like, the Daily Beast has taken a different approach with really wanting to leave its mark in this. Um, and HuffPost hasn't, really. I think it's important to, um, I think, we, well, we haven't left that story, the whole Trump cycle behind. Right. It's on the unavoidable. Other, uh, right, <laughs> but, but on the other hand, um, I think the way we think about it is we're trying to build an organization that can endure for long periods of time. And I think one of the, kind of false dangers just from a media company perspective, if the growth of your brand and the attraction of your audience is really, really specific to this exact political moment in time, what happens when this political moment changes? Mm -hmm. And like people get sick of this story and your brand only stood for that one thing. And I think for us implicitly, what we're trying to do is not be so driven by particular stories, but particular connections with audiences who we think are underserved by media. And that's delivering news and politics content, it's delivering uh, social content, it's delivering fun entertainment content, and lifestyle content. Uh, so the pivot to video. Sure. Did you pivot to video? We did. Well, <laughs> we, just to be very clear, we were ahead of the pivot because uh, at HuffPost, and this predates my time, we launched HuffPost Live, yeah. which is actually really interesting. Ahead of its time. Way ahead of its time. And, um, and what HuffPost Live was, was essentially a cable-style uh, news programming delivered uh, online. And uh, it was ahead of its time. It was really cool. It won a lot of awards. And now, as we fast forward yeah. the world, that seems to be a trend. Well, there was no OTT craziness going there was on. No there. OT, there was no OTT. Like, bandwidth was less than it was right now. And frankly, people hadn't figured out the cost structures for how to deliver that yeah. kind of content. And now, when we look at, coming full circle to your question about Facebook, when we look at... Um, where innovation is trying to happen in terms of news content, a lot of it is coming back to live video programming. And um, so we were ahead of that time, and um, we're, we're obviously rethinking that, just like everybody else uh, in the industry. Did we pivot to video? I think we did pivot to video, but we, made, we were kind of cautious in our pivot to video. What we tried to do over the last few years was experiment in a few different places. So short form video on Facebook, on YouTube, on Snapchat was all the rage for the last mm -hmm. two years. And we certainly participated. And for a couple year period, we were able to grow our video views on Facebook, for example, to a billion video views a month, which was awesome, and you know, people congratulate each other, and mm -hmm. we're really excited. And how much um, money were you making? And off we're those making things? very little money. Um, <laughs> so the story you have to tell—it's like, hey, either money's going to come, and/or, hey, our videos are so great that we're able to attract these audiences. And I think when you roll up your sleeves and really analyze it, the question is: Is the video content you're creating actually connecting? with real people in real life, or is it not? And I think at the end of the day, that's what you have to solve mm -hmm. for. Um, so are you doing more shows now? We are, we are doing, we're still a mixed bag in terms of video. We are doing more shows. We are doing sort of higher level, like higher costs, higher value programming. Mm -hmm. And we have a slate of things that will we'll launch uh, towards the end of this mm -hmm. year, which we're really excited about. We're 
um, still continuing to invest in video on social platforms. Um, but I think one of the unique benefits that HuffPost has compared to a lot of new, newer publishers, um, which is ironic to say is because HuffPost has always been the disruptor, and then there's a new wave, is actually a key advantage that HuffPost has is we have a huge audience of people who still come back to our sites. And I shouldn't say still, who are like delighted to come back to our sites. And one thing that we What been, percentage is direct? Well, it's, it's a pretty significant percentage. And I think direct is still, for us, larger than social traffic, which okay. is really important um, because there, there was an era where people were of the mindset, hey, you no longer need your own properties. Like, just live yeah. freely in the world, which is, which is great. I think we've swung full circle with all the talk of subscriptions, with all the talk of membership, with all the talk of engagement, is having your own destination where people want to come to is really valuable. And so for us, what we're spending a lot of time thinking is how do we enrich that community um, and nurture it in really profound ways. We'll be right back after a quick break. Digiday has three other podcasts you should check out. One of them is Digiday Live, our podcast where we highlight the best sessions from our many summits around the world. We just posted an interview I did with Insider CRO Pete Spandy and another I did with the Skims Brandon Berger. I'm biased, but they're very good listens. Find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or Anchor.fm. That's our latest edition. And let us know what you think. Now back to the episode. So um, on, on the business side, yeah. um, I, I think it was a year ago you, uh, you were here, and I asked you about subscriptions. And you What did I say? No. Oh. Um, <laughs> well... I'd have to go back to the tape, but I'm right, yeah, sure. So I'll take your word for it. <laughs> the interesting thing is I'm... I, uh, Subscriptions can be great, and keep in mind, as you mentioned, I spent a long uh, portion of my career at Spotify, which I think has done a very good job with the freemium model uh, leading into subscriptions. Yeah. But at the end of the day, if you think of the scale effects of like Netflix or Spotify, just as media organizations, it's really extraordinary the number of subscribers both of those organizations have been able to acquire to what I think a lot of people look at in this country as the gold standard in the New York Times. Mm -hmm. um, I, the New York Times has three-ish million subscribers, and Netflix and Spotify are like at over 100-ish million subscribers. It's a massive scale difference in terms of that consumption. And I think the question is, is three million a success? I think it would be a success for 99.999% of publishers in the marketplace. Um, but what do you have to do in order to get people to reach mm -hmm. into the wallet and pay for you? And I think what you have to do is establish a brand that over a long period of time stands for something so great and there's a strong enough connection with your audience that a meaningful number of people are willing to reach mm -hmm. into their pocket. And I think most digital-first news and media organizations are not there yet in terms of their relationship, which is why every time you ask a CEO or publisher of an organization, they're like, yes, it's coming. And the reason why it's coming is because I'm not convinced people yet have a strong enough connection with their audiences to pull that off. Okay, so it sounds like you're closer to this, but that it's not there yet. I, I think for a lot of us, it's a, it's a progression. Yeah. And, um, and yeah. So from your experience at Spotify, mm -hmm. there have always been these, um, these, these startups that come out and they say they're going to be the Spotify for news. Yeah. Why has the Spotify for news never happened? I think, um, so I'm not a historian, so I don't exactly know, but I, I think one, uh, well, one 
one basic reason is that there is a lot of news content freely accessible to most people in the world. And there's a lot so of music content out there. That's true. But then the question is, what is the value add that you can provide to consumers that actually um, will cause them to reach into their wallet? And in the case of Spotify specifically, I think the problem they solved was um, was many problems beyond the content problem. So it's like aggregating enough music content, using data to recommend uh, music for you uh, in ways that you yourself may not um, actually but know. But they also they remove friction. They remove it's friction from easy. the system. Yeah. Exactly. And essentially, that's what Spotify has done in a really strong way. I think in the new space, it's possible that that could happen. But I think to a lot of consumers, they currently feel they can get their news met by the existing array mm -hmm. of publications and, and the friction isn't as great. Now, maybe yeah. somebody's going to come along and solve that problem and that'd be great. So I think the interesting question with subscriptions is whether or not the percentage that you can convert can get up from like three to five percent to where Spotify is. I mean, how much of Spotify, like they convert a far higher percentage of their users into paid. I would and assume Netflix. so. Like, I mean, so I, I, I wonder like you said, like is three million? That's yeah. is that good? I don't know, but I think it would be great for every publisher in the U.S. Yeah. and for New York Times. Yeah. I'm sure they're happy, but it it's could still be only like three percent. Yes, like um, I think I think one reason why we're talking about this is that the advertising community. I think there's like work that we can do with the advertising community to ensure that free well, free-to-consumer content and media can still be supported by the mm -hmm. advertising community. And I think um, one reason why we're talking about subscriptions is primarily because investors of media companies are nervous about just the advertising markets, generally speaking. And so um, what all investors want are good narratives to make them feel good about their investment. So like the path towards membership and subscriptions makes sense. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I still believe that there's a tremendous synergistic opportunity that has always existed in the history of media between sort of advertisers and marketers, content creators and distributors. And I think um, I haven't given up on that. Yeah. So yeah. HuffPost right now is yeah. overwhelming majority of its revenue is advertising. Correct. Okay. What are you doing to diversify that? Or are you just saying, you know, you got to dance with the girl you brought? Well, um, one thing to be very clear, and, and I think most people in this room are better experts on this topic than I am, is even within the advertising uh, uh, segment as a whole, there's tremendous diversity. And so what, what we have done, one interesting thing is HuffPost currently is part of an organization called Oath, um, which itself is a big uh, internet media company, and that is part of Verizon. And so um, the key assets in there, and I, I run HuffPost, I also look after Yahoo News and, and Yahoo.com and AOL.com, is looking at sort of different approaches to the advertising market. And all of these organizations came together by uh, merger and acquisition. And so seeing how different brands thought about um, maximizing the ROI of advertising, they went about it in different ways. So I think there's tremendous diversity in advertising alone. Mm -hmm. And so that's certainly one place that we are spending a lot of time ensuring we're doing as good of a job as possible in that segment. And then I assume there's some incremental things. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of people, you know, and then there's 
there's a lot of experimentation taking place, just like you're here at this conference mm -hmm. because you think this is good for your brand and, and a good revenue source. A lot of people are thinking about offline extensions. People are thinking about, well, membership, subscription mm -hmm. stuff. And I think it's always important to think through other business models. But for us, we are very clearly an ad-supported business right now. Okay. We have time for maybe one or two questions. Um, anyone want to? You, you said that there's 40% who are not engaged. I'm just kind of curious why you think they would want to be engaged. Maybe they don't want to be engaged. Well, that's, that's possible too. And it's also possible that the 60% of people who voted also may be disengaged or disenfranchised by the current media landscape. And so um, uh, the way we tested this is last summer we rented a bus, like an actual bus, and we put um, a bunch of our reporters on this bus and we traveled around the country um, to very specific destinations where people tended not to vote. And we set up tents and we had our journalists interview people in those local communities. And we interviewed thousands and thousands of people across these uh, communities uh, in order to understand what their mindset was. And essentially these are the people who are previously serviced by hyper-local newspapers, many of which have gone bankrupt, so they're actually not serviced by any newspapers, and try to get their perspective. And we aggregated all of the results of those interviews and are now forming a point of view, and we will publish a report based on our bus tour. And, but the high-level conclusion from that is that we believe there's a demand amongst uh, those communities, and we intend to fulfill that. Okay, anyone else? Um, I'm just curious about the um, uh, decision to remove the blogger network. There is a lot of criticism about that, and it's something you guys um, pioneered in a way. Um, I'm curious what the decisions were. In part, you know, looking from the outside, you could say, you know, there is a lot of good, you know, even though um, there is maybe a lot of stuff that wasn't um, super premium, there was still a lot of really good kind of unique opinions and whatnot. Um, and at the same time, Huffington Post was also criticized for not paying these bloggers, right? And so I'm just curious um, if you could go into a little bit more detail in terms of what really drove that decision. Because I could also imagine that Lydia said, coming from the New York Times, we don't do that. And so I'm just curious, you know, ultimately what caused that decision? Well, at the highest possible level, um, we're trying to push all of our content to, be, to reflect our own editorial positioning um, because we're trying to get the brand and all of the content associated with HuffPost oriented around that mission. So that's um, the first. Um, and the second is putting aside sort of editorial and like Lydia's perspective, if you think about um, it from a, when, when the blogging network was created, even from a business perspective, SEO was the rage and a lot of companies thought about, it was the era of social media. YouTube was born then, Facebook was born then, and HuffPost blogging network was born there. And there's this great virtuous cycle. I'd blog, I'd tell my friend and people would, would come back to it and would build audience. So building scaled audience in and of itself was a stated mission for many media organizations. And for us, consistent with what I said in my opening remarks, just building audiences in and of themselves is not a goal that we have. We'd rather build very focused audiences. And, and, so, and then the third piece is we haven't shut down the door to having contributors write for HuffPost or create content for HuffPost. While we did shut down our contributor platform in the US, we also launched an opinion platform where we'll have a much uh, tighter, more curated group of outside um, 
uh, journalists and opinion makers have a forum to express their point of view. It sounds like you thought that it was ultimately a drag on the brand. Uh, I, also, I, I, think, I don't know if it's a drag on the brand. Uh, I think it was very helpful for HuffPost's brand historically, but we're actually trying to be much more focused and, and deliberate. So while I wouldn't say it's a drag, we're actually just trying to get much sharper in terms of what the brand stands for. Okay. Jared, thank Great, you so thank much. Great, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Okay. Thank you all for listening. This podcast is produced by Aditi Sangal. If you liked our show, please subscribe. We are on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and now also Spotify and Anchor.fm. And while you're there, rate us and leave a review. This helps other people find our podcast, which would be very nice. Um, I don't have a new review to read this week, but I did want to give a shout out to Wade Wallace in Australia. Uh, Wade wrote me. Uh, he runs a site called Cycling Tips, and he was astute enough to take note of my oddball reference to Alp Duez in the previous episode. Thank you, Wade. And thank you all for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode.